Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. I am so glad to be with you on this, the weekend of Palm Sunday. Uh, If you're not familiar with what that's all about, that's the very passage we're going to talk about today, the very story we're going to talk about today. And what it really hinges on is our idea for today is, is how to respond when Jesus comes to town, because that's what Palm Sunday is all about. Um, Palm Sunday is one of the great moments in Scripture. It is cinematic in its nature, almost like Rocky going to the tops of the stairs when he's training for his big, uh, his big boxing match. It, it has that kind of feel to it, this moment of crescendo, this moment of importance. So important, in fact, that you see this story described in all four Gospels of the Scripture. And it's as though, for once, in this moment in time, the people seem to understand who Jesus was. Or did they? See, as amazing as Jesus is and as appropriate are his accolades, any that we could give him, you don't have to look very hard to see how easily the people who saw Jesus on this day still missed who Jesus is, who Jesus was. That Jesus could be right in their midst, and yet they still didn't understand who he was. They still wouldn't truly know him. They wouldn't experience what Christ was offering. And I wish I could say that that was only a weakness that they possessed. But I also know the same can be true of me. I can be so close, so near to God's presence, yet I can so easily miss God's purpose. I can miss God's desire for me. It reminds me, uh, years ago when we were in college, I, I worked at the Salvation Army that's right down here on Jefferson Street in Eugene. I spent half of my time on the church side of it, and their half on the assistant side of it, when people would come in for food boxes, and I would, I would, they had this computer system, and you would check them in, and 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 if their name came up and they were, you know, um, eligible for a food box, you give it to them. But if they've gotten one too recently, they wouldn't be eligible, and you'd have to tell them you'll have to come back later. And I can rem- still remember the day that Elvis arrived, <laughs> like full on Elvis. He pulled up in a Cadillac, and full. Elvis, like the whole outfit, the whole like hair, the glasses. He was an actual legit Elvis impersonator and he looked great. And he came in looking for assistance in the form of a food box. And I had to put his name in, which wasn't Elvis, but, uh, but you know, I was like, you're our Elvis, obviously. And, and I put his name in and, and sadly he had, he had received assistance earlier, uh, not too, too long before that. And I I had to tell the king, sorry, uh, you don't get uh, an assistance. It's going to be a blue Christmas for you. You know, uh, yeah, it's a little less conversation, a little more action would do you some good, probably, because it's it's not coming together for you today. You don't qualify. And um, it just seems so weird to me to to have to interact with the king (laughs) in that way. It seemed the wrong response. 
I think the same could be true with what we're looking at in this passage. Although there are glimpses of right responses in this passage, as we look through it, you will realize that truly the right responses were in the minority. Lots of different responses here, but most of them are not the responses that God intended. The people still missed it. And it's the people that I want us to look at today. Because as much as we'd like to tell ourselves we are different, I think some of us would also recognize that the weakness we see in them could be seen in us as well. And I see three kinds of people in the story. Three types of people who found themselves in the presence of Jesus. And perhaps you too will see yourself in some of these people or maybe in more than one of them. So the story starts this way. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. He's on foot. And as he entered Jerusalem, Luke's account tells us that he's actually grieving over Jerusalem. In Luke 19, we're told he weeps over Jerusalem, saying this place is going to be knocked down, taken out, because you didn't recognize that this is the time of God's coming, that, that Jesus himself was the answer to their prayers, and they were missing Jesus. And so because the, the so-called people of God didn't recognize, didn't recognize the person of God, they were now going to lose so much in Jerusalem. They were going to miss out. And we see Jesus struggling with that reality. Then Mark tells us that the, the day gets late, and so Jesus goes and, and sleeps at his friend's house in Bethany, two miles away. That's where uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they, they live there. He sleeps there. Comes back. And on the way into town, this time, he curses a fig tree. <laughs> and you may be like, what's, why would he do that? What's Jesus got against figs? Is he fig intolerant? What's the, what's the deal with figs? And it's really because this fig tree looked healthy, but it didn't bear fruit. And that would be a theme that we're going to see throughout the story, this problem of outward appearance over actual fruit in, in Jesus. But the first truth that I want to point out is is pointed at how we respond when Jesus comes to town, and it's this truth. Jesus is looking for followers who are teachable. Jesus is looking for followers who are teachable. That's the first truth that I would point out here. Matthew 21 is where we're going to start. In fact, let's read it together. Big voices, go. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. So here's a very simple truth about what it is to follow Jesus. Those who hear his voice do what he says. That's what these disciples did. As messed up and broken as we know that they were, here in this passage we, we see discipleship in its most distilled form. Jesus says, go to the village. You'll find a donkey and it's cold. Bring them to me. And if anyone messes with you, just tell them I need it. <laughs> and it says they did just as Jesus directed them. 
I mean, that's not a super easy assignment, right? I mean, we could go to downtown Eugene, maybe down by the bus station. You could see a bike there that's got a kitty trailer. You could grab it, and then if anyone messes with you, you just tell them, that's okay, God needs this. I don't know if that's going to fly. Now, I wouldn't put it past some of those folks to maybe try that particular method, but it's a bit risky. Yet here, in perhaps the purest example of genuine discipleship, Jesus asked the disciples to do something, even something challenging, something that might appear risky, and they did it. We talk so often about loving Jesus and about the richness of that relationship, of that relationship the emotions, all of that. But Jesus also said, the, said some things that add another layer. Like John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Now we understand that it's because we couldn't keep God's commands that we need grace, we need forgiveness. But what strikes me about the disciples here is that even in their fallenness, even in their brokenness, they still heard what Jesus asked of them, and they attempted to do it with all of their hearts. The question is, can we say the same? They didn't look for loopholes. Jesus said it, and they did it. Too often, we draw a distinction between our love for Jesus and our obedience to Jesus. And yes, we, we fail in all of our efforts, and grace always meets us there. But I wonder if sometimes we fail because we never really wanted to respond to Jesus in the first place. We never really had any idea that we were really going to do what Jesus was asking. We, we, we never really resisted the enemy, so the enemy never fled. We never really waited on the Lord, so my strength was never renewed. How many times have I said, Jesus, I love you with my words, but my actions spoke the opposite? See, one of the foundational truths of Scripture is that there is no difference between what God says and what God does. God said, let there be light, and it was. He said, let the sea separate from land, and it did. It's... That there's never a difference between what God says and what God does, but that's not the same for us. We can say we love Jesus, and the next moment we can walk out and be unkind to our neighbor because our neighbor perhaps has a different political view than us, and we can put them in a different category, or we can be distant to our spouse because, because of, not because of anything they did, but because of something that happened to us at work. Oh yes, there, there is a, a difference between the love we declare and the love we express. Yet Jesus wants us to have this complete love, uh, heart, soul, mind, strength. We, we get the heart thing, I think, but there's more. And these disciples, they show us more, a love expressed in action, in obedience. That's what a Christ follower does. We adjust to Christ, not the other way around, because Jesus is looking for followers who are teachable. So first thing, here's the second thing. Jesus is looking for followers who are missional. 
Uh, let's continue the passage, Matthew 21, 7 through 9. Big voices, go. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The, the branches that they were getting from the trees, those were palms. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, this idea of the branches being waved and put before them. This is the only time in Scripture that we see Jesus riding anywhere. <laughs> He's always walking. This is the only time we ever see him riding. And that's intentional. There's a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It's made reference to that, that your king is coming humble and riding on a donkey. Humble because kings rode on horses. <laughs> Peasants rode on donkeys. You want to come in as a king, you don't ride in on a donkey. You ride in on a nice big white stallion. You know, that's the way kings ride in. But here is a picture of how a peasant rides into town. Not even on a full-grown donkey. On a baby donkey. Maybe not even a fully broken donkey. Could have been like a rodeo. It could have gone, out, it could have gone crazy. But no matter what, it was a humble vehicle. <laughs> I mean, I think of the president's motorcade, right? Uh, president's motorcade has 10 to 40 vehicles, depending on the event. There are police cars, there are motorcycles, there are a parade of black SUVs and vans and Cadillac limos, many of them fully bulletproofed, carrying not only the president himself, but the staff and the Secret Service and dignitaries and counterinsurgency teams. See, that's how kings show up. That's how kings show up in style. The president doesn't show up in a 1997 Ford Taurus <laughs> with maybe a couple of Pintos running interference, you know. <laughs> maybe the Prius in the back, you know. But, but see, here's the king of kings, right? The king of kings. You would expect a parade. You would expect fanfare. Let everyone sing together. Look at this. This is the king. This is the Messiah. Because that's how you let everybody know this is what's up. That's how you let them know there's a new sheriff in town. Everything is different. But Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, shows up in a Ford Taurus. <laughs> Why? Because, yes, Jesus is king. But he's not that kind of king. See, here's the problem with the crowds, with the fans. They sang, Hosanna, please deliver us, save us, because God saves. But God was wanting to save them in a far more complete way than they were thinking. They were looking for uh, political relief, governmental relief, relief from being a conquered people, uh, salvation from the empire of Rome. They were looking for someone to take their side in the political arena, but Jesus had a different salvation in mind. Often we are looking for someone to save us from the oppression of our circumstance. Jesus comes to save us from the oppression of our sin. Very different. The crowd was looking for someone to fix the problems out there. But Jesus was coming to fix the problem in here. 
See, Jesus knows that we're always going to have problems out there. He guaranteed it. Absolutely true for the Jewish people when you think about it. If you look at the history of the Jewish people from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to Caesar to Hitler, there's always problems out there. Always problems for the Jewish people out there. But Jesus didn't die for the problems out there. Jesus died for the problems in here. This is what Jesus was trying to get to. See, I know people who love Jesus, yet they go through their entire lives believing that Jesus is supposed to fix everyone else and everything else except them. That Jesus' job is to make, just make it easy for me out there by fixing all the circumstances. Like there's a particular type of person um, that I would say shows up at churches. I've seen this through the years. Um, this is not any individual I'm speaking of, but a type of person. And the story usually goes something like this. They'll tell me their story and they'll say, you know, hey, we came to your service and really enjoyed it. And pastor, you're great. Just want you to know, you know, we were at a church for, for five years and then we got offended and we left that one. And then we went to another church for five years and boy, they offended us. So we left that one. And then we went to another church there about five years and then they offended us, and we left that one, and now we're here with you. <laughs> and I want to say, get out your phone, pull up your timer, put in five years, and hit start. <laughs> because the time's coming here, too. You're looking for peace out there instead of inviting Jesus for peace in here. This is what those who misunderstand Christ's mission do. For those folks, their relationship with Jesus is only good as long as Jesus makes everybody else change, as long as Jesus makes the circumstances change. But the minute Jesus says, you know, this might have something to do with your heart, this might have something to do with your brokenness, with, 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 there's really one consistent person in all of these fractures, and it's you. When Jesus says that, for some people, that's game over for their faith. You ever notice that it's often our first reaction to assume that the problem originates with somebody else? You know, I, I was thinking about this. I've been on planes a lot lately, and I was reminded of this flight uh, I was on years ago, and I was looking, I was reminded because I was looking at the chairs that were in front of me, and it was the same kind of, of airplane chair that I was on uh, recently, because I remember I was sitting in the seat, and Paula was next to me, and I decided I would pull up the armrest, because um, I want some room between us. So I go to pull up the armrest, and I'm having trouble with it. It's like, man, why won't this thing go up? And as I'm pulling it up, the guy behind me is yelling, ah, ah, he's like crying out in pain, ah, and, and, I'm, and I, I didn't make the connection that there's any connection to me doing this and that guy yelling, but I'm just like, man, why won't this thing go up? And what I, what I realized eventually is that he had taken off his shoes and he had, he had stuck his foot right under where the hinge of that, of that armrest was, and it was, it was just squishing his toes like in a vice. And I'm like, what's going on with this? And he's, and he's like rubbing his feet, and, and he's in all this pain. And I realized, as I'm, I'm, as I'm doing this, I realized in that moment, oh, I'm the problem. Like, I'm... 
I thought it was his problem, not connected to me, and I discovered that I, I was the problem, and he probably never walked the same after that. This can be our brokenness around misunderstanding Jesus, because we say to Jesus, we're only good together, Jesus, as long as you fix my problems. I will shout Hosanna if you do that. But the minute Jesus tells us that his mission is not our comfort, it's our conversion, that we're called not to just care about ourselves, but to care about others. It's there that we can move from fan to foe. This crowd had a right mantra, but a wrong mission. Hosanna, blessed is the God who saves me, not from the temporary troubles of a corrupt world, but from the eternal corruption of a flawed heart. Jesus wasn't your typical king, so he showed up in an atypical way. And Jesus calls his followers to lives that are expressed atypically, that we live out his mission. Because Jesus is looking for followers who are missional. It's the second thing, here's the last thing. Jesus is looking for followers who are fruitful. Let's finish out the passage, Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You may not know this, I, I never made this connection, but this was actually the second time Jesus did this. He did it the first time in John chapter 2, right after the wedding. Okay, so think about that. Jesus does the same thing of the turning over of the tables. He did it at the very beginning of his ministry with the wedding at Cana. And he does it again, same place, at the end, three years later. And so I have this feeling when Jesus showed up this time, it's like a parent at the end of their rope. Like, I, I totally told you guys about this. I, I told you to do this and you didn't do it. I told you to pick up the Legos because they're so dangerous to step on and you didn't do it, you know? For the last time, I told you, you cannot flush action figures down the toilet. It just doesn't work it. You still do it. It's like the things you never thought you would have to say to your children, you know? I remember when, when uh, one of my sons was like 15 and he asked for a tattoo kit for his Christmas. Like, well, I don't think we can do that. <laughs> I mean, we thought about it. Thought, that could be cool. But then we thought, nah, probably not great to have a 15-year-old tattooist. So Jesus has already told them once, already made this, this thing, already turned over the, the money tables. And he comes back three years later to the exact same problem in the exact same place and you can almost see, it's like the vendors see him, they're like trying to pack up. They're like, oh, hey, Jesus, I was just, I was just leaving. These guys, are they're really messed up around here. I was just going, I'm not a part of this. I'm going to just slide on out. You can almost sense that that's what's happening. And so he comes in and he dumps everything over again. And, and, and it's because no one exemplified the empty religious system that Jesus was responding to more clearly than the money changers, the, the religious merchants, the religious business people. They made money in three ways. They 
sold items for worship in the temple. So like pigeons, other animals. It was like a convenience store for that. They, they sold them there. They always sold them at an advanced price, much like you would buy like a burrito in a, in a, a theme park. It was, it was kind of like that. Um, second way they made money was by exchanging it. Only Hebrew money could be used for the temple tax, so you must exchange it. And so they charged a fee to exchange for Hebrew coin, and then they charged a fee to exchange it back to the, the Roman coin. So they got money both ways. That was the second way they made money. And the third was as religious loan sharks, if you can imagine this. If a person came to the temple and they couldn't afford the the price to pay for a sacrifice outright, they would give them a loan and they would charge 300% interest on that loan so they could go and worship. It reminds me, there was a time in our lives, our married life, we were so poor that all we really had to our name at the time that, that we owned was this, this uh, Ford LTD, a 70s Ford LTD, big boat of a car. And we needed money for something. I can't even remember what it was for, um, but we didn't have it. And so I remember going to one of those car title loan places. I know it's, it's, it's a little bit shameful even to, to know we did this, but or I did this, and Paula was probably not in on it, but uh, we needed it, needed money. And so I gave them my title, and they gave me this loan of whatever, it was like worth 150 bucks the car was, and, and gave me that so we could do whatever we needed to do and charged us this huge amount of interest. Now, I remember being able to repay that quickly to get the title back. It didn't take very long, but I just remember that feeling of knowing these people are, do not have my best interest in mind. Knowing it, it, they're just loan sharks, man. They're just going to take me for as much as they can get. They certainly were not looking out for us. Now, imagine that kind of environment set up in the, the, the foyer of our church, Okay. That's what Jesus was responding to. This was organized crime masquerading as organized religion. There are those who do use God for selfish gain, which, by the way, is always the motive behind religion, to look like I care for others, but it's really about gaining something for myself. I may look pretty on the outside, I may look spiritual, I may even proclaim some truth, but the, if the motive is not love for God, it is love for self. That's the difference in religion. Merchants they were there in God's house to get something from people, not to give something to people. And Jesus is always inviting us to give to people. The gospel, the good news. And I look at that and I say, how dare they? That's outrageous. But then I have to also realize I can at times fall for the same trap. If I look deeper, that, that, I, that what if I reach out and care for that person? Not as much because I love them, I, I like them, but because I like what I get in return. You know, I'm considered a nice person, a compassionate person. And so deep down, even in that, it's all about me. It looks good, it looks selfless, but deep down the opposite can be true. 
What do we get in return for doing that nice thing, that compassionate thing? Is it always really about blessing others? Or is part of it that we like people to see us as one who blesses? A, a good person, a caring person, a compassionate person. Would I do the same if no one would ever know that? See, this is the stuff that Jesus always tries to get to in us. Jesus always talked about motivation. With giving, he talked about give so the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Why? Because we can give for the wrong reasons. Jesus knows how our motives can erode so quickly. And this is where religion always takes us. That I'm somehow earning my way to God. I'm saving myself. I'm enriching myself. And the simplest way to evaluate that is this. Religion always seeks to get, not to give. We must then find a way out of that. A way to give out of a true motive. To, to find a way to love that is not about getting the credit for that. These frauds pretended they were providing a service to others while in truth they were only serving themselves. And religion wants to make that kind of fraud out of all of us. To, to diminish this relationship with God, to you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Transactional relationships, some kind of spiritual bartering system that God meets us halfway and we meet God halfway. But God's love, God's love is never halfway. God's love is never 50%. It's always 100%. It's everything. This is the God who gives everything. So must we. God invites us to nothing less than that. That's what God wants us to experience because Jesus is looking for followers who are fruitful. I'll wrap up with this. There, there's a great epilogue to this story. Here Jesus uh, stands in the in the temple that he just thrashed, right? <laughs> the tables are all upside down. There's money all over the floor, probably, you know, pigeons and stuff flying around, feathers, you know, maybe sheep and stuff. It's just chaos. And he's standing in the middle of, of this place. It's just thrashed. You know, it's like, like a preschool classroom after free time, you know, it looked just destroyed. But suddenly, amidst all this mess, God's house becomes what it was intended to be. It's in Matthew 21, 14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. That's what was supposed to happen there. That's what God intended all along. And that's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for our church. That we would gather amidst the mess and the rubble of a broken religious system and choose to be about what Jesus has been about all along. Seeing those that are blind. Seeing those that are paralyzed. And we watch them be healed and be set free. That our church would allow itself to be that messy. And at the same time to be that beautiful. See, this is what should happen because this is what happens when Jesus shows up. As real as Jesus was to them on that day, as noticeable as Jesus was to them on that day, 
even as he walked the, the last portion of the Jericho-Jerusalem road on the, the ground that was softened by cloaks and palm branches and the air filled with praise and shouts of Hosanna, as real as Jesus was to them, Jesus wants to be that real to us. Jesus wants to be that real to you, to show up in your life like that. Jesus doesn't simply want to triumphantly enter our town or our church. Jesus wants to enter our lives. That's why Easter is possible. Because Jesus is willing to come against those who would stand in front of people seeing him for who he really is. My hope today is that perhaps we could join those crowds in shouting Hosanna, but not for Jesus to save us from our circumstance. Rather, could we shout Hosanna because we know Jesus can save me from myself. Because Jesus came to do just that. Perhaps we could shout Hosanna together with that in mind. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.